0: a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey everybody. Just going to do the quick reminder that the other people podcast is a listener supported program. All episodes are free. The app is free. Uh, Almost 500 episodes, all free. So if you're a regular listener of the program, if you get something out of it, if you enjoy this podcast and you want to show your support, you can do that at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. That's patreon.com slash other PPL pod. Thank you very much. Okay.
1: You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid
0: thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's
1: really beautiful. Gee, what a right. struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy.
0: Just one person at just one time. Right. Right. So hey everybody, right. how's it going? Welcome to the Other People Podcast. I'm Brad Listy. I'm sitting here in Los Angeles, California. And uh, I am very pleased to have Carl Geary on the program. He's got a novel out called uh, called Montpelier Parade. And it is uh, available in the United States from Catapult. It got a starred review in Publishers Weekly. It was also a boxed review. So Publishers Weekly does this where, you know, if you get a starred review in these trade uh, review publications, that's obviously good. You get a starred review in Kirkus. You get a starred review in Publishers Weekly. But when you get a starred and boxed review, that's like doubly spectacular. So Montpellier Parade in Publishers Weekly, was starred and boxed. These are the designations. And uh, it's really gotten some great press, and I was very pleased to get a chance to talk with Carl. He came over, uh, he's doing a U.S. book tour, and flew, I want to say he took a train from uh, Glasgow, where he lives, to London, and then caught a flight to Los Angeles, and then landed, like, after midnight, and then slept for a couple hours, and then came over here. Sat down with me had some coffee, and we talked, and he he was delightful. He's had a very interesting life. He has uh, worked as an actor. He owns a bar. He came over to the United States from Dublin when he was just 16 years old. He's written a movie. He starred in movies. You know what I'm saying? Like he's done all this different stuff. He's had a varied creative life, and now he has written a very well-received novel called uh, called Montpelier Parade. We talk about all of it. Uh, and I figure we should just get to that. Should we not just get to that? This is my conversation with Carl Geary.
1: Um, but most of this book actually was written between New York upstate uh, Woodstock, and then I used to take trains up to Montreal to finish. So what, what was it, in Montreal? I couldn't speak French, and I needed to submerge myself in such a way, and I couldn't quite do it when I understood everyone around me. And so by traveling up north like that I I suddenly was entirely isolated and I needed that sense of isolation to get to where I needed to get with the main character Sonny. Yeah. Yeah, it was it really turned,
0: effective. It does turn you inward. It does. To it, be in a place where there's a language barrier. Yeah.
1: Yeah, it really does and it's it's um it's a bizarre thing because you have to have kind of a stomach for loneliness. Uh for certain characters. I have that. I really <laughs> enjoy it. I think it's almost like picking a scab. I, I enjoy it. Yeah. And it makes sense. But it's a nice place to work from.
0: Well, you know, it's funny because I was... Uh, I You know, I started working a day job not too terribly long ago. And... Uh, you know, I'm in I'm in an office all day, and I'm interacting with people. I like people. Yeah, same as that. I'm you know, I, it's not like I hate people. <laughs> but you know, after uh, as a writer and as somebody who has worked solo for a long time, to suddenly be, you know, eight
1: ten hours a day, interacting, social, having to be on. Yeah, yeah. Well, there is a there's a certain switch that has to get. or Otherwise, your colleagues start avoiding you. The, there's a water yeah. tower always. Right. I don't want yeah. people to think I'm weird.
0: But no, I I find myself like getting up super early yeah. just so I can have some time to just like hang out by myself. I'm yeah. like, I'm like w- do I have a problem? But I guess that's just how <laughs> I'm wired, how a lot of people who are bookish are wired.
1: I don't know. I don't know. I, th- I think there's a real quality to that. And it's funny where we have an environment of society in some ways that suggests that it is odd. And I, I think there's a strong case to be made for the opposite of that. I think some kind of alone people who are comfortable in their own skin are much better equipped to deal with the world in a different way and see it um whereas the the reverse of that is you just kind of roll and all the time you're kind of an autopilot yeah i think a little pause a daily pause
0: and yet i do marvel at people who n- literally never tire of being social like love having lots of people around they want like house guests constantly yeah. and you know what i'm saying <laughs> I'm like holy I, you know and it's amazing to me that they just they don't they don't wear out you know yeah
1: yeah yeah i agree <laughs> so there's a part
0: of me that envies it but you said you're from dublin originally so let's start there like you were raised from what birth tell you
1: yeah i was born in dublin i lived there until i was 16 um and then at 16 you know this is 80s dublin show my age uh and the terrain was fairly bleak um And I think most of us at that stage, we kind of grew up with an eye already towards other places we could be. And it was a very common thing. And it was was an expression at the time, which was, you know, last one out, turn out the lights. Do you know that Ireland would just be in complete darkness because everyone would have to split What what,
0: what was what was going on in Dublin at the time that made it so bleak?
1: Well, in terms, I'll I'll give you an example. There were people with third level degrees, university degrees, who were flipping burgers. Um, The interest rates were in the twenties, high twenties. The economy was just in a tank. It was it was the Thatcher time. It was hunger strikes. There was uh, the, the minor strikes in in UK. And it was just generally, <laughs> it, it was kind of a bleak atmosphere, do you know? Um, and you would hear stories from immigrants who had been in other places and they just seemed gloriously romantic. Sure. Or they did, at least to me. But I think part of why I wanted to get out is because I wanted to... I knew there were other universes out there, and I just wanted to just see one, yes. just to see: is there another way? Is there different lives? And it's not because my life personally was so dreadful, but I certainly felt like this this kind of real hunger to know other things.
0: So, what, what did your what were your folks doing?
1: Um, it was, they, you know, I, I'm looking my fo You know, I grew up in a large family. Uh, my mother was a traditional, you know, housewife, uh, w- which is all I knew as a possibility. Even that's, you know, at that time in Ireland. And my father uh, was working, doing his thing. You know, um, what did he do? He was a builder. He oh. was a builder, was a, a bricklayer, and um, quite a good one too, actually. But um, I just, I think, yeah, I just had that hunger to kind of get out and explore the world a bit.
0: How many siblings did you have? I had eight. So big Irish Catholic big family. Irish
1: Catholic family. I was the youngest of them, and I think that's another thing. Is you know, I think when you're the youngest, you become sort of a an observer. You know, you kind of become witness to the family, um, which I like actually. I'm, I'm, it's it's not a role I dislike, um, but you certainly tend to watch in this kind of almost hyper vigilant way to kind of see well that's how that person is that's what how they're living you've got
0: a lot of precedent to work with yeah
1: you do and you've got to get to
0: learn from everybody's successes and mistakes yeah
1: yeah you haven't not an advantage but you you know and, and my my own family are very generous with their what they know and would talk about that stuff and you know maybe you want to try this and that and so even though it seems preposterous in some ways to leave your your country of origin at 16 and it was the other alternative seems, to me at least, more ridiculous.
0: So, you talked about um having a sense of other universes out there and wanting to go experience one. I'm imagining that your uh, elder siblings were a source of information for you, but were you getting it also from books and movies yeah, and that kind of stuff? Yeah, there was a
1: couple of. I mean, uh, you know, the, uh, there was a small art house theatre in Dublin at the time, the Odeon, uh, along the quays in Dublin off the Liffey. And. Uh, I would go along, and they would have these these double bills and you could go and just lose yourself in there for hours. It was great. Yeah, it was great. And I hadn't done uh, terribly well in school. I, I was dyslexic, and it was undiagnosed. And uh, I think it, it just didn't make sense to me. It didn't add up. And actually, it wasn't until I got to New York uh, I was lucky. Most Irish at that time were heading out to Boston, and if they were going to New York, it was the Bronx. It was Queens. Very traditional Irish areas at the time. And I landed into the East Village almost by accident. So what happened? Well, what happened was I uh, had a friend whose sister knew a guy. This is how far removed I'd never met him. His name or his nickname, at least, was Johnny One Eye. Uh, <laughs> John Sinclair's his name. terrific guy. And I had his number, and I called him Johnny One Eye. I called Johnny One Eye from Dublin, sixteen years old, and I said, "Hey, Johnny One Eye, <laughs> <laughs> I want to come to New York." And he was nuts, but he was nuts enough to go, yeah, yeah, sure. You want to come over? You know, he did that whole thing. And he was the most glamorous sounding thing I'd ever heard in my life. But he had a bicycle messenger company and he just happened to need someone. And that was back when you had bicycle messengers. you know, you had a beeper, a bag and a uh, a bicycle that would be stolen every two weeks. Sure. Um, And he said, yeah, come on out. And so I showed up, I think about three weeks later, uh, immigration. I had a student passport that expired in about six, I think it was a six month passport and the immigration officer looked at me and I think I was so absurdly young looking like I was 16 going on 12 that he went, yeah, of course this guy's not staying. Look at him. (laughs) (laughs) He let me through and I I don't think I went back to Dublin for seven or eight years. and you know I, until i sorted myself out and got my got myself right but uh yeah i worked as a bicycle messenger for a couple of, it was a great entry kind of a great and terrifying entry into new york city well, i
0: was going to say it's a great way to learn a place got to mean, be on a bicycle but yeah. it's also you know you're risking your life every you're time you're
1: risking your i mean it's treacherous work but I, I i've come away now with this almost encyclopedic knowledge of new york city it's it's great yeah like you know, every alley every everything. shortcut yeah you know it yeah and then what would happen was we'd all hang out afterwards in Washington Square Park and all these guys would sit around and none of them had names. It was like Spider and Johnny, you know, Joey <laughs> No Mates and da, 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 you know, and all these guys. And, you know, you'd sit around drinking 40 ounces of Old English 800 and it just seemed like, oh, my God, I've arrived. But the one thing that was terrific about the East Village at that time was your rent was about $200 a month. From what year is this? This is 88. Okay. And it meant that anybody, well, first off, you had a great kind of mix of people who didn't quite fit in anywhere else, and they all showed up here. And what was terrific was it, it, it was, you know, it meant that people could figure themselves out, they could nurture themselves in a way that's unthinkable now. And it's all down to the economy of that local neighbourhood. You know, if you're paying, what now, three, 000, four thousand dollars a month, you've got to get up and work in the morning. Yeah. We had time. And the value I now place on time is phenomenal. Do you know, I just realise now the way the world is seems to be endlessly gentrified. We... Where, I don't know where artists are going to come from. Yeah, it's I not know. Los Angeles. It's not New York. It's not Brooklyn.
0: Well, I was reading uh, an interview that you did, and I think you were quoting uh, something Patti Smith said, which I've heard more than once. Yeah. yeah, Which is like she's giving a talk in Brooklyn or somewhere. That's right. And a young person said, uh, you know, what, what, what? do you? what is your advice to someone who's a young aspiring artist in New York? And, and
1: what yeah. did she say? Well, she didn't break stride. She just went, leave. And that's heartbreaking because New York has been this terrific hub of creativity. That's what it does. Yeah. You know, and there was a deal. We had a deal. It's like, it's like the deal with the pigeons, you know. You, they don't get in the car's way and we just drive. But the deal in New York seemed to me at least was the Wall Street guys all went over there and they did their thing and that was fine. And we in the east side did our thing and they, we left each other alone. And it feels to me now at least that that deal no longer exists and if you're a young artist it's impossible now to have the time that we had to just figure out is it visual is it out do i want to write do i want to you know all of these possibilities you know kids get out of college now and they owe a ton of money they have to start working immediately there's no time for what we spoke about earlier that just to sit and go what am I interested in? Yeah. How am I affected by the world? What matters to me? That conversation can't happen anymore because your landlord's coming at the end of the month and then the month after that. And it's, it's this kind of relentless thing. I really feel, you know, I feel like a lot of young people, they've got a rough deal.
0: Well, they've got it or they've got to find they got to go make their own place. Like I Correct. was reading about people because the Bay Area has become so cost yeah. prohibitive. Young people are moving to Sacramento. <laughs> so you just and I've, <laughs> yeah. heard, I've heard the same thing about Pittsburgh. Yeah. Like places that before you would never have associated with young hip.
1: Apparently there's remarkable things happening out in Detroit. Some of the neighborhoods there.
0: Same thing. So, So, I mean, hopefully people are going to find a way, but it seems like the only option. You're not going to be able to retrofit unless there's some massive... Um, structural change or some co- like economic collapse or yeah you're not going to be able to retrofit manhattan no to accommodate artists it seems like it's lost at it, least.
1: it is and actually it's funny too because i think you have to be careful that you one becomes very romantic and sentimental about a time and you have to let these things go and do exactly as you said you got to go and discover new places to to fit you
0: yeah, I mean, I don't know. It's just, but it's it's hard not to to feel heartbroken about the loss. It's a big loss because you know you go to Manhattan even today with all of, you know uh, all of the complaints one might have about the way that it has been sort of turned into uh, you know like a shopping mall or you hear yeah. all the, the common criticisms. Sure. It's still an amazing place.
1: It's a great city, and you big, you yeah, want to be. Yeah. It's the
0: kind of place that as a as a creative person, you're like, wow, this is an inspiring spot. Yeah, there's so much history here. Yeah, I would love to just be. Uh, in the mix here and be able to experience this every day and yet how how do you do it and pay your rent like you were saying yeah. uh, it just yeah. it seems yeah. like it's impossible
1: it's also interesting too because i know i, I still have a, a, a very interesting relationship with that city but I, I do feel like a lot of what i do there now is around memories and memories are a very bizarre thing in that, and i'm really fascinated by this how one Brings their own history to a place, do you know? And so the filter between what you're seeing and what is actually there is not entirely honest, which is fine. What do you mean? Well, what I mean is that my New York, the New York I experience when I think of New York, and even when I walk around certain blocks, I have a history with that stoop, oh, right. of that corner or over there. And so I carry all of this stuff with me. And then you think of the likes of eight million people all carrying that same narrative with them entirely different narratives yeah yeah isn't it it remarkable of
0: course yeah i mean especially for a bike messenger yeah did you ever see that show high maintenance no i didn't you should see it Really, it's about a weed delivery guy who rides around new york on his bike i bet you it would make you in some weird way nostalgic Uh, i bet it would it's a terrific show too. there was
1: a guy actually in the early 90s called himself the pope and he took an ad out in the village voice he didn't last long but he took an ad out and a selling pot that that he would uh he would deliver a pot and he got made a fortune for a couple of weeks. And then the cops are like, wait a minute. <laughs> we're not there yet. But sometimes see, I, I
0: kind of like his strategy because sometimes the more brazen you are, the more yeah. in plain sight. Who like knows? Nobody, nobody takes it seriously or they're yeah. not, that's not where they're looking. That's right. But it sounds like the cops were on this one. He gave him a couple of weeks. They, the Pope. They out the Pope.
1: <laughs> I love that. The Pope.
0: Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer or if you just love literature, Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Uh, so, okay, so did you, you didn't, did you go to school when you were in New York? No. You had no university, but I, I almost uh, would argue that how could you possibly top living in the East Village from the age of 16 through the age of 22 or whatever uh, in terms of education? That seems like a great education in and of itself to be on your own there. It's a type
1: of education. I mean, I I don't think it's for everybody, Um, but it's funny. You know, it's interesting because I I, I, certainly in the last year since the novel has come out, I've spent a lot of time with people with, uh, you know, a lot of degrees. And I think there's a there's a commonality between us, um, which is that, you know, academia is something that happens after the fact. So you write a story and it comes from a different place. That's not where a story comes from. I mean, with fiction, anyway, with prose. And afterwards, obviously, you have to put that uh, sort of an academic shape on it, um, which is important. Um, And so where one of us carry one bag, the other one carries another bag of tools. And really, I think we all kind of struggle towards the same thing and the the journey you make to get there is it's almost irrelevant you know in terms of you know making a case for or against that
0: so like when you're uh, a young person a bike messenger uh are you are you when do you start to harbor artistic ambitions
1: that's a great question um i read Because, again, if you go back to that kind of environment that I was in, every conversation ended with somebody going, oh, have you read dot dot dot, you know, and you would go and you'd seek this stuff out because you knew next time you went back, you had to have something to say about it. And it was a type of university in that regard, but it was, it was very organic and it, it allowed you to kind of maneuver You'd, if you head it one way, if like for a while I headed off in the way you do as a teenager down the beatnik track. I was going to say, yeah. what were some of the books? Like that, that was well, those guys part. were around. Yeah. Like you would see, you know, um, um, Ginsburg sitting in a coffee shop. I mean, these guys were around the neighborhood. You saw them. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And, he, you know, and the people like that and your man Dewey, who was the guy who kind of influenced all those guys and and guys like that around, you'd see Lou Reed around and there was no kind of firewall. People didn't bother these guys, but they would respect for them, you know, um, and if you were worth your salt, you knew about who they were and what they were about and the kind of work that they were doing and the kind of, kind of groundbreaking they had done at that period. Um, so... You know, what started to happen, at least for me, was, you know, there's this relationship that I love between an author or between a a work, the writer and the reader. It's like you meet in the center place somewhere and it's entirely intimate uh, and private. And there's something in that private um, environment that is similar as a reader as it is to a writer. You know, so there's, there's all, there, there was already something that was starting to kind of build and I'd tried, it and made attempts at writing kind of, you know. That early? Well, that early. And I wrote, a, I wrote my first novel when I was 22. What was it called? Uh, it was called The Digger um, and it was appalling, um, earnest, you know, it was kind of what you might expect. Yeah, it certainly wasn't Keats, um, but I, I uh, it, it served as a terrific apprenticeship to kind of know your journey through a book and what that involves. Just to get through just to get through the process. Yeah, just from A to B, you know, to understand something about structure and to understand something about themes and plot and just a basic characterization, like real nuts and bolts stuff. Um, and so even though I went on and I did a lot of other stuff, I would always identify pr- privately, as a writer, as a prose writer. And I continued to work throughout. And I started, you know, a number of books since that, that you just felt like, okay, I'm delighted. I, I went this journey, but we've gotten to a dead end. Because, you know, it happens. You, you start into something. You think, you get very excited. And you think this 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 is something. And it evaporates. So how do you know? This is always an interesting question, because I've had
0: that experience. And I guess you sort of just intuit it. But there's always something of a struggle with regard to uh, answering the question, like, am I quitting on this? Or is, well, it, or is yeah. it really right to drop it?
1: Yeah, I think that's a, I mean, it's, it, it is entirely the individual's uh, intuition, I suppose, but you have to trust that voice. I think for me at least, what, what, what was different, certainly with Montpellier Parade, was that it wasn't always a struggle. It's like any relationship, you know, particularly in the beginning, it should be fun at least 40% of the time, if you're always fighting <laughs> the 40% rule. You yeah, it first. you know what I mean? Yeah. This is, <laughs> you know, and also it comes after you. You know, you do like the, the, I show up at the desk every morning anyway. But then what happens is at different times throughout the day, it kind of taps you on the shoulder and goes, hey, what about this? Or did you think? You know, these these things start to come to you. And it's really exciting when you're in that stage, you know, um. And you're not 100% sure if it's there, but you kind of think, well, maybe this, maybe this is right. Um, but a big part of it for me as well was maturity. I, I wish I'd matured younger, but I didn't. But you know what? That's an
0: interesting point. Because there are people who mature in their 20s. Yeah.
1: There are. Oh, absolutely. There are people who
0: mature even earlier. Usually they've had some horrible shit happen to them. Yeah. (laughs) I think it takes some of that. Sometimes, yeah. yeah, I think sometimes, like, you know, that's the trade-off. But there are some people who just uh, really have a sense of themselves and a sense of their creative selves in a very solid way at a very young age. And that's probably the exception rather than the rule. But it's a real possibility in life. But what is also a real possibility, uh, I think, is that there are people who don't, get it sorted out until they're in their 70s.
1: Well, also, for me at least, it was a question of being able to sit those hours.
0: By the way, I'm not suggesting that Carl's in his 70s. I'm really... It's, it's,
1: it's old man Geary sitting there at the desk, yeah. I, had to, I needed help to get Do you need the a door. diaper change? Are you I good? I think we're getting there. Okay. Um, but it was, it was. It was a question of being able to sit the hours that were required. Right. Um, but not just to sit there, but to really, you know... You know, I, I think, for me at least, writing comes from this kind of central image that you're trying to to bring into the light somehow in a, in a, in a, a way that feels authentic. Um, and in order to do that, you have to be able to really get quiet and listen to that stuff. Yeah. Um, and I wasn't interested in writing the way I'd written in the past. I, I, there was a quote, actually, I heard that I think is wonderful, um and I'm not comparing it anyway, but when Joyce was um talked about Dubliners after it was written, um he said he wanted the language to have a, a scrupulous meanness. And I thought that's brilliant. And what he means by that is that it's not exaggerated one way or another. That the language is paired back to just the right place where it's not hard in any way, but there's no fat. And I love that. There's something about that. So each word has its own gravity that makes sense. And also, there's a woman I love who influenced this book a great deal, I'd say. Uh, Maeve Brennan. She wrote for The New Yorker for years, but she was a novelist as well. And uh, she worked with uh, William Maxwell, who I believe it was William Maxwell, yeah. who, who uh, was a really a legendary editor. He worked with Salinger and people like that. He was an extraordinary man. But she had this thing that when she would show him her work, that she could defend every word. And it was, I I thought, yeah, that's where right. It it has to be that level. And that's what I mean when I talk about maturity is that it's not that you're wasting your time, but you're taking the time required to do what's required. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So let's talk about um, I want to get to Montpellier Parade and sort of um, the creative genesis of the book, but before we get there, I want to hear more about uh, your creative evolution because you went through you've gone through different creative identities. You've tried yeah, different things I have, yeah. which I should say a lot of writers that I've spoken with on this show um, you know, kind of a surprising number, from my perspective, have played in bands.
1: Oh, right. You know, yeah. like a lot of people, yeah. like
0: you've done some acting. Yeah. You've written for the screen. Yeah. So let's talk about just your, your life in New York and how it led to these things. Um, and then I'm, I am going to have to also ask you the obligatory question about Madonna.
1: If you wish, you you I, I have to do it. I
0: have, people have to know this. But uh, just talk about it, because, like, I think that... Um, the individual path that people take creatively and a willingness to experiment, you know, try on different hats. Um, this desire to, uh, play in different genres and in different creative spaces can be really instructive when it comes to finally sit down to write a novel. Mm -hmm. You know, I would imagine that all of these experiences inform the writing of Montpelier.
1: Yeah, I think every experience does. And, and and you're right. I mean, look, creativity is its own monster and there's different forms of that. Um, I have a, a love affair with prose. I always have. Um, and I suppose part of, in terms of acting, and I did. I worked seriously as an actor for a number of years. Oh, was, how old were you when you started? First job I did, I, was, uh, I think I was 21, um, I did a movie with, uh, it was with Peter Fonda, which was kind of cool because as a kid, the only poster I had on my wall was Easy Rider. Why? There was something in that freedom. There yeah. was something about that film that was unlike anything else that I'd seen. Did you have psychedelic experiences as a kid? That were powerful or anything like that. You mean, in terms of drugs? Yeah. Um, when you say a kid, well, t- teenagers, oh, t- oh, sure, I had an appetite for that stuff. Yeah, 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 I did all of that. Was stuff. it? Did you find it
0: like super powerful and instructive, or was it one of those things that would just kind of happened on the side? Because I think for some people it's a real it's a it's a real central experience especially for creative people
1: uh no I, I nearly fell off a roof a couple of times and <laughs> and it was a disaster <laughs> It really nothing nothing i opened except my head uh, I like that answer okay um so no uh, i wish um yeah but uh, and I I was very lucky you know I I was around New York again at a time where independent film was kind of taken off it was a really vibrant time I worked with Michael Almereda a number of times with whom Michael Almereda who uh, you know he was one of the East Village filmmakers that was still going today and he's wonderful but there was there was a lot of those guys like Jim Jarmusch and and people like that who were just around and their films are starting to emerge the Angelica uh, Cinema had just opened in West Houston and you know there's a real kind of resurgence in filmmaking and what was unusual at that time which doesn't exist today again uh is you didn't have to be a star and you could be a little different or you could be from Ireland and be in that film because there was an understanding that New York was a melting pot and people from Ireland lived there you didn't, right. you know it wasn't like a thing right and um, and you didn't have to be a bartender or a priest right. so it was kind of you know it was it was it was great and uh so you did work as a bartender, correct? I've owned bars. Yeah, um, but uh, but you've never been a priest. I've ne- well, I've tried. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I offered to marry these two people once, be their their minister. They turned me down, but I it was you know, an apprenticeship. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I you know, so it was a good time to to be around that neighborhood. Did you take acting classes? Uh, after I'd done my first film, I did. I thought, oh, this is what I'll do. This will be great. And, of course, I didn't work for three years Yeah. because um, that's not the way the world works, or that is how the world works, rather. Um, and I did. And now I went and I studied. I studied in a very serious way uh, in New York for a number of years. Like what
0: did you do? Like the, uh, the like Stella Adler kind of uh, stuff?
1: Not Stella Adler, no. Um, it was more the... the um, kind of method acting, there was a couple of really renowned teachers out there at that time that I managed to to work with Um, and it was intense, it was great, it was a whole other development because it's like this uh, physical manifestation of these these things that kind of rattle around inside you anyway Uh, and scripts were great and there was some really Kind of good stuff out there it was it was really fun and i liked I liked the process like I'd loved cinema growing up it was important to me, so to be around a set made a lot of sense to me but i in saying that and i I've said this before in interviews, I always felt the problem I had as an actor was that i I am such a natural observer that I was always a few beats behind where I needed to be, and when I went watch somebody who would really, really could act. Do you know And I'm very lucky? I did scenes with Bill Murray and Helen Mirren and Sam Shepard and really remarkable people or people I, at least I find remarkable. Yeah. And when you're in a room with someone like that and it's not because they're, I mean, obviously they are famous people and we've grown up with these images of them, but there's something else going on. There's this, this sharpness moment to moment that they have that I thought, I don't have that. That's not that's not how I am in the world, and it was great to know it. But it was it was fabulous to be able to watch these people do their thing. It was fascinating.
0: Bill Murray grew up in a big family. Yeah, lots of. Yeah. Stuff. I wonder where he was in the uh, order of birth.
1: Yeah, that's a good question. I don't Maybe know. he was the eldest. <laughs> what a big brother! He's not
0: looking up. He's not looking up at anybody. Yeah. He's
1: constantly. He's just like you know. He's at like the tip of the spear. When I, I he was in Ham I was in Hamlet and he he played Polonius and. uh, On the first day of rehearsals, he showed up late and he tried to quietly drag a folding chair into the circle of actors who were reading the play. And it was like this kind of gorilla trying to be gentle across the forest floor. It was very funny, but afterwards uh, I'd said hello to him. We were having a chat and I was leaving and I said, well, look, it's a pleasure to meet you. I, I guess I'll see you on set. And he looked at me in that kind of flat-eyed, fish-eyed way that he has, and he said, well, maybe one of us might get fired. (laughs) And I walked away. (laughs) that's funny that's great yeah right off the bat right he had you oh i was like yeah you you don't mean you do you (laughs) and sam (laughs) shepherd uh he just passed away he was a Um, he was a force he was a force of nature he was really a remarkable man and he did a thing he played the ghost uh, hamlet's father hamlet um Um, and he doesn't fly and so what he would do he was head his ranch out in the midwest But he was afraid of flying i don't know if it was a fear but he didn't fly Um, I mean, I think if he had to eat it, but he didn't like it. Okay. But what he did is, you know, the ghost has one kind of monologue in Hamlet. He stuck the the monologue on the window of his car that he drove from out west to New York City. That's safe. And just I know, yeah, pretexting. <laughs> and that's that's how he learned. Is he just all the way across? He just kept going back and forth and back and forth. Yeah, I thought, what a brilliant man!
0: Yeah, I was like when I was when he passed away, I was reading you know all the different uh, eulogies online and everything, yeah. and uh, like reading about this farm that he lived on, looking at pictures of this farm that he lived on in Kentucky. Kind of a remarkable it's guy. Of, like, Sometimes you you come across people like that, and you're like, well, he really seemed to have figured out yeah his life or yeah. something. Yeah,
1: yeah. yeah. And I think actually one of the few people you can just look at it and go effortlessly cool. Yeah, but you know in a, in the most authentic way, and you just go. I don't know how that guy. He just had a little force of nature.
0: Like because that's the thing. I think that you know w- when it comes to the arts, especially, and when it comes to fame in the arts, yeah. there can be, uh, you know, I think there's like a premium placed on uh, cool on depth of soul, mm-hmm. but what I find sometimes, and I think what one of the challenges is, is that there's the difference between the performance of cool and the performance of yeah. depth of soul yeah. and, off- and authenticity. Yeah. And like, he strikes me as like a, a very authentic person. Patty Smith strikes me as a very authentic. Clean. There
1: were, there were two peas in a pod. Yeah. yeah. So, Absolutely. and I mean,
0: I read, uh, just kids. Uh, I never lived in New York, which mm. is one of the regrets I have, especially as a young person. It's yeah. like, you know, it would have been, it would have been a good thing to have gone through, but um, you know, and I wasn't alive at the time that she was there yeah, sure, doing this stuff and she and Sam were sort of uh, meeting and yeah. in cahoots, but man, it made me nostalgic for a time that I never lived in to yeah. read that book yeah. and to be alive in New York when it was like that she really made it seem she was
1: what she did in that book is remarkable yeah really remarkable you must have loved it yeah there's a there's a great quote uh george o'keefe talked about it um about new york and it was i'm going to paraphrase unfortunately but it was something to the effect of you can't paint new york you can just know it and i think that's brilliant and what she managed i think patty smith really found a way to talk about a place and time in because you know when you get into you know there's, there's, it's not it's a very difficult thing to try and capture a spirit of of a time um, and you have to talk about it from the from a different side almost and it, it happens around the piece but it's never what the piece is about yeah. but she managed to actually go right into the centre of it and work out that way it, she's. She really pulled something off with that.
0: Well, and I'm also amazed too. like, or not amazed, but I, I made note of the fact when I was reading that book that, um, it seems like in artistic movements or in periods of time and in specific places where the arts really flower and there's really a scene or whatever you want to call it, Mm. that you will have people who, um, are very gifted, who kind of live, um, on the edge who are uh, consuming a lot, not taking great care of themselves. Mm-hmm. You know, you know those yeah. th- those people. <laughs> yeah, but um, more often than I think people realize, there are people like Patty Smith who was right at the heart of it and was right in the middle of all that. But you know, I think when you're looking at her from the outside, not knowing very much, you would assume since she was right there in the mix that she would have led this crazy life. But she was actually. She had it together. She was not living, um, uh, like she wasn't living fast. She was kind of slow and contemplative Mm -hmm. and taking better care of herself than the people around her. Than the people around her. And you kind of need people like that. It's not a surprise, I guess. Uh, What I'm driving at is it's not a surprise that she would be the one who would write the book.
1: She's one of the few survivors as well. Because also, if you think about that crew in particular, because that, that was late 70s, early 80s. AIDS took out right. so many of the brightest Yeah, because let's be honest, the brightest ones, they were getting laid the most. Right. <laughs> and that was the, the shocking thing. And so what happened, and I think it's part of why we have the New York we have now is that the, the B and C list were what was left mm. and they took over the reins. Yeah. And now we have that in New York.
0: Yeah. The AIDS crisis, uh, there's a documentary. What was it called? It was like how to defeat a plague. Mm. I've talked about this before. I, I, I have a terrible memory, but I, it was an excellent, excellent documentary. Yeah, that I was. I was a young kid then, so I wasn't really. Uh, I didn't. I, you know, I wasn't aware. Yeah, um, of what was going on at the time. Sure, but you watch that, and um, you get a sense of like how many lives were lost and how much resistance they faced in just trying to get basic help.
1: Oh, absolutely. And yeah. awareness. I yeah. mean, it, it, I don't know, just yeah. like a
0: kind of a maddening catastrophe, but also uh, inspiring the courage that um, the people at the forefront of that entire thing. They were incredible. They were incredible. Yeah, they, they really, really were. They, they really yeah. had to build their defenses from the ground up.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's interesting, just to go back to when, you, when you're talking about a scene, and New York obviously has had so many different scenes over the years. Um, I ran a place in New York for about nearly t- seven or eight years called Chennai." and it was a little music cafe. It was actually just a tiny little hole in the wall in the East Village, and it was but music. of renown. Well, l- later on... And and I think this, this is what I was going to say about that. So we had some remarkable people. It was it became a real hub of activity. Like who? Uh, well, Jeff Buckley's probably the most famous because he done he used to play every Tuesday night to Empty Rooms. But when he did finally get signed, he was most comfortable to do his first album out of there. So it was live at Sinead. But, you know, we had days there where Marion Faithful would do a, a totally randomly a duet with Sinead O'Connor. And if you weren't in the room, you missed it. And it was incredible. And it was incredible, not because we sat around all the time going, hey, this is a scene. It was because <laughs> we, were, we were curious and there was this energy in the place that had its own momentum. But you can't create that.
0: And you don't even sometimes know exactly what you're dealing with until after the fact. It's
1: after the fact. And you're like, wow, that really was a thing. Because you realize how sterile things can be. You get whole decades going by and you're like, wow really nothing happened was, here. But that, that was unique. That was, a, that was a decade. And it was. It was incredible.
0: Um, what was it like being in, I'm assuming you were in the bar on a quiet Tuesday night and a guy of the, uh, the you know, the, the talent of Jeff Buckley is playing. Like, did you see it? Did you notice? Like, oh my God. Well, he guy... played,
1: you know, it was funny because there was an awful lot of, um, Hal Willner had brought, um, Hal Wilner's a, a renowned uh, producer, Um, He brought Jeff by and he knew his father and he brought him by and Jeff was trying to figure out his thing. And in terms of, again, like artistic pursuit and creativity and apprenticeship, he knew he wasn't there yet. Now, he could have signed a deal any day A MAGA Records at the time really wanted them. So did Sony. And he kind of turned his back on all of that stuff and said, now I'm going to figure out I want to write songs because that's what he wanted he hadn't figured out how to do that yet hadn't found his voice and he played Sinead it was like you know Tuesday night nine o'clock some days there were a lot of people but most of them it was nobody. It was four guys and two of them were like you know meeting some girl and they were like I really this guy attention. would shut up so he can hear what you know <laughs> and it was you know and even even for myself it's like yeah it's Tuesday it's just Jeff you know because it didn't. He did. He didn't care about that. He was. He knew why he was there. He was figuring out what he was creatively. And again, you know, and I, I keep harping on about this at the moment. But I really think if you don't let people have their apprenticeship, you're gonna. It's really we as a as a as a people lose out. Do you mm-hmm. know? Yeah. Um, and unless there's more environments, and I think there's a responsibility both to people who are further along and to maybe the state to kind of go, this is important. Like to a, to a culture and to a society. What to... else, you know, what are we otherwise? Yeah. Yeah. What matters? Yeah. Like what, what really matters? Well, I was, no, what was it? Uh, God, I'm going to,
0: I always, I have these like anecdotes and I want to paraphrase them and I, I forget the details, but it was something Winston Churchill said about the arts and why they were fighting world war Two. Someone said something to him, but he's like, "This is why we're fighting." Basically, yeah. is what he said. Because what else are we? Because what else are we? If we don't yeah. have. Uh, what the are we arts- fighting for? Yeah, that was that was the, the gist of the anecdote. Yeah. And I'll, you know, at some point, figure out the exact details. <laughs> but it, you know, the point is that in a uh, world that's worth living in, yeah. Not to make not to make it sound too precious, but it- well, it
1: it does. It, you <laughs> see, this is the problem: is it becomes pat. You're like, oh, I'm just being sentimental. Yeah, I'm being I'm being wishy washy. Yeah, and you're like, well, hang on a second. Well, what does matter? What do you care about? Do you know? Because if it's not this stuff, we're all just sitting on the same freeway, stuck in traffic. In some ways, like, it, you know, what, what 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 is important? Chasing money. Yeah, I mean, and I'm not knocking that stuff. And even when I'm giving the, the Wall Street dudes a hard time, sure. You know, I, I, I understand not everyone is set out to do the stuff that we do. And I'm not saying that what I do is that important. But actually, there is a value in being able to witness yourself as a human. And the only way that we've figured out to do that is by being creative, in whatever way that is. Right. You know? Right. Um, and so if it's, if it's not sponsored, it it's not a guarantee that we get to do that. Do you know, and so if we're all hemmed in too tight to a structured life, we lose that stuff, Do you know, and it's a big loss. It really is, Do you know, because what we're left with then are these romantic and sentimental stories about New York in the 80s, you know, Paris in the 30s. Oh, these were great. Why not now? You know, Los Angeles in the teens. Nobody
0: ever said. <laughs> <laughs> I have this dream that if I ever if like if my ship ever comes in, I make a ton of money. I would love to, I have, I can even visualize it. There's like mountains, there's a lake, and then there's like, you know, cabins all around it. And it's like some sort of artist colony.
1: I don't know. But I've had that that dream in my head. It's interesting you say that though, because I tell you the other side of that is, you know, artists shouldn't be separated from life either. Like, I have a friend of mine, there's this wonderful uh, sculptress, in, sculptress even, I think, sculptor, <laughs> um, in, in Dublin, uh, Grace Weir, and she has this expression that I love, and she goes, Hang on a second. Artists need to buy, buy their bread and their milk like everybody else. You can't pluck them as a separate thing. You gotta have them, you know. They, <laughs> they walk around and look the same as the rest of us, yeah, you know. Yeah, and and that's important too. You know, the idea of plucking them and putting them, you know i've never worked in a cabin i've tried it's so painfully difficult the pressure is overwhelming because, because you're like i got everything i, got I need. A, everything is, <laughs> it's like you don't though because you don't have life yeah you know it's like it's easy to go and meditate and be a monk in a you know in a monastery right you know do it on the one do you know i was trying to come up with a name of a freeway the, the, the 405. 405 there you go it's a lot harder yeah i mean lay life or yeah. living in a
0: uh, in the quote-unquote real world Man, it's a much bigger challenge. It's a bigger challenge. So, I mean, I could see, like, as a summer thing, or, you know, if you, you know, because they do have these... Uh, oh, uh,
1: I'm not knocking artist, that at all. I mean, sure. Retreats. I mean, I'm all for, for being able to go and retreat and do your thing, but... As a permanent you know, situation. No, you're got to live in the world, yeah. you know, because that's what we our work is about.
0: Right. So, uh, Madonna, in the middle of all this, like, you're living in New York. Yeah. You're acting in independent films. And then you wind up, what, getting a gig, uh, posing with Madonna for her sex book?
1: Is that what happened? Yeah, that's exactly what happened. And, and you know, it's funny because it's not, not that it haunts me. I mean, it does in some ways. You're going back 22 years, something like that. Yeah. And I, I I do get asked about this a lot, and it, you know the whole the whole thing from start to end was I I don't know maybe an hour of my life, and it, it, it <laughs> isn't really it funny, isn't it funny how an hour it's just, of your life. you're like <laughs> wow that hour you know there's other people have said this and done far for you know more significant things, um, but it was as simple as you know I I suppose and I was embarrassed of it at the time, but I, I'm older now so I'm not. Um, I I had looked a certain way. I was was kind of an androgynous looking kid. And, uh, you know, I guess that was part. I mean, actually, you know, it's funny. It's really easy to knock Madonna and kind of, you know, be, you know, she's she's low hanging fruit in some ways. But I think she was actually trying to do something authentic. I don't know how successful she was at that. But you you were really kind of dealing with what would be third wave feminist movement and this kind of exploration of sex. In all its many facets, and that's a that's a that's a fine pursuit. Um, and so, from that respect, I, I kind of think it was kind of a cool thing. Um, but the reality, is it was a very you know corporate packaging of a of a of a selling of sex. So, what was what was the actual experience of that hour like? You're with her. Well, it was you know. Here's the other thing. I was I was working in a place like I was running this place downtown. I was watching people who I just loved, you know, Marion Fatal, Sinead O'Connor, I was looking at the cream of talent every night of my life. Madonna wasn't on my radar and the best the best way I can describe that is I'd leave the East Village to go uptown to do the shoot. Once you went past fourteenth Street anyway, you were in this corporate land, you'd left your hub even then. Even then and that's fine, because New York is like that. But, you know, we all had our little spots. And so, you know, it became a very corporate thing. So the whole thing was entirely sterile. And the photograph's very mild. It's very thin. It's, you know, a, and it wasn't, it just didn't impact me. Did you interact with her? Oh, sure. No, she look, a, a terrific girl and a really interesting Oh, moment. she was
0: nice. Okay, because I've heard oh, different Oh, no, things.
1: not at all. I found her, at least my experience, was well, she's incredibly pleasant, super professional and uh, really bright. Like a bright woman yeah. and powerful in, yeah. in in the best way, um, and and was very much uh, at the helm of her organisation. But it's an organisation, right? Um, and I'm, again, I'm not knocking that, but it was different than what I was experiencing daily downtown. You know, which was much more kind of fluid. Yeah. Um, but no, so the, the, the experience really didn't impact me one way or another. The only thing that came out of that entire thing for me was I have this, this story about how my mother found out about it, which I love, <laughs> which is that I, I guess there wasn't a lot of other Irish kids in the book and uh, the Irish Times, which is a national newspaper. It's like the New York you know, it's a national new newspaper in the country for some reason, thought it merited the front page. <laughs> and they popped that photograph right on the front page of the Irish Times. Sealing your fate. Yeah. <laughs> that you would be asked about Because uh, I never thought to mention it. I don't think I mentioned it to four people. It was like a thing. Was, but crazy things happened in the East Village at that time all the time. Right. And so it wasn't a big deal to me. Um, so I really never... Th- really talked about it how how did you even get the gig oh i was uh, i was approached a lot because i guess a lot of people came through shanae and i was approached quite a lot to do photographs for because i had this look you know was a good looking kid yeah um and uh i mean if you go for that kind of thing I'm not, you know it's not for everybody <laughs> but uh so it, it wasn't unusual and this seemed interesting because I was interested in music and she was a musician you know it just seemed interesting and I was kind of I thought well you know it might be interesting um so the gig kind of came in through uh, so it was Stephen Mizell was the photographer and uh he you know he'd asked me to do photographs previous and I kind of I really wasn't that int- it just wasn't my landscape you know sure. it just didn't interest me um But there was a a grocer who lived about 100 yards from my mother, you know, this old fashioned grocer who must have been 700 years old. He was always there. He's probably still there. He's always (laughs) old. He was born old and very conservative and probably Catholic and all that stuff. He had a little black bicycle and uh, he sells the Irish Times. So we saw this and my family weren't reading the Irish Times. And so he rolled up the newspaper and pedalled his little black bike and knocked on my mother's door, and she opened the door and he handed her the newspaper like it was some filthy rag, <laughs> and he said, "You might want to see that, moron." And off he went. And she opened his, <laughs> <laughs> and called and she said, well, "What are you doing?" It's <laughs> <laughs> <just> horrifying. Distraught. <laughs> I love that so that was the best and most interesting thing is just this image i have of of my local grocer delivering that paper i love that i really like that so
0: let's do uh i want to talk about Montpelier parade and like uh, how you got from you know all the stuff that we have just discussed in the east village and the different iterations your creative life has taken on over the years Um, i know you you wrote for the screen you acted uh, at what point did you start to and then you also started books that didn't come to fruition. Yeah.
1: But yeah, at what did. point
0: did this did this book um, occur to you? Where did the you know, where was the point of creative genesis? And then what was the point at which you realized, like, I think uh, I've actually something. got it.
1: You know, it's funny. I, I had it and I didn't know I had it in, in some ways. I, I was in Glasgow before I was living there. My wife's family are from there. And there's a museum there. Um, that's fairly unremarkable and it's like the least endowed museum in the world probably. There's a few scatterings, there's about four or five decent paintings. But down the back, uh, I came across, there was a Rembrandt and it was like in a, it was, I was parked in the, in the broom closet and I came across this Rembrandt that was called The Carcass of an Ox and uh, for anyone who doesn't know it, it's, it's, it's a beautiful, well, it's Rembrandt, it's beautiful, but it, it depicts almost a, a crucified carcass that is hung out in an abattoir and there's a small figure of a boy behind it just peeping around the corner and the colours, it's almost like Dante's Inferno. It's extraordinary. And it really affected me. And uh, I I've been affected by, by, by paintings in the past, but there was something that stayed with me with this. And It was the question of, you know, it's very much a painting about class. Who cuts the meat? Who eats the meat? Who is the meat? Um, Because meat is a commodity, you know, in this way. And then you kind of realise that the carcass, in this case, is the people who cut, you know, that we're all kind of part of that. And my my book isn't very much about class. Um, But that painting gave me Sonny. it gave me his desire to he wants to paint it gave me his job he works in a butcher shop and it's funny that you get these things and you don't even realize you had them but the, again and back to that idea is that i realized that the, my job at least is to when you have these images that you're trying to draw out into the light and you kind of have to chip away a certain amount to discover them. And that's what writing this book was all about for me, was really trying to find these images and bring them in, into the light in some way. So when did you see this painting? When, like, what was that? That was about six months before I started writing. Um, and I, you know, I, I wrote all the time anyway. I, I have a good work ethic. Um,
0: what, t- like what time do you, how do you, you say uh, earlier you get up in the morning? Yeah,
1: I'm a morning person. I like it. I, even, even when I was young, I, I was always morning and I'd sleep in the afternoon. Afternoons never made sense to me. <laughs> so we so just kind of chunk of time in the center that was, you know, so that seems like an appropriate time to sleep. Um, but I, I would get up and I would work. And so this story kind of presented itself and it presented itself very close to fully formed. You know, Um there was an enormous edit I did that I took out about 100 pages because I realized it. But that was more about trying to refine the language. Um but the story itself, the scrupulous meanness. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because there are times where I felt I had exaggerated. You know, I had I had moved the, the dial too far left or right. Um, but the story itself kind of showed up fully, fully formed Um because what I was missing, the point, the part, of the, the, the story. Just if I give you a very brief uh, synopsis, it's basically the story between Sonny Knowles, who's a, a working-class kid, who is at a place in in his life where he's just stepping out into manhood, and he's starting to realise the way society operates, and that what he wants or dreams of in the world, maybe society has a different idea about. And he comes across a woman, uh, Vera Hatton, who is really other. And she's other in terms of age, class, knowledge, uh, and what's available to her. And I was interested in putting these two people together to kind of see what would happen. Do you know Um And, you know, it's funny, too, because, again, it's a lot of what we've been talking about today. You know, I wanted to be very careful. I wasn't interested in sort of and we've had a certain amount of this in Irish fiction over the last while, this kind of poverty porn. Right. It doesn't do it for me. I I think there's been some really great kind of kitchen sink dramas, 60s, 70s, 80s that have been very successful, but they've been done. And so I wanted to go to the next stage of that and kind of go, well, hang on a second. Is, is, is what I'm interested in what's on the kitchen table, in the pantry, or is it what's not on the wall, what's not in the bookshelves, what's missing? And this, this vitality that we get from having access to art, and that's what's missing from Sonny's life, and that's what Vera gives him. Hmm.
0: Well, you know, it's interesting uh considering like the totality of our conversation and knowing a little bit now about, uh, where you're from and, uh, you know, what you've been through in your life, the places that you lived, that you have written a novel that deals with class, um, makes perfect sense. Cause what an education coming from, uh, you know, an era in Dublin where opportunities were scarce, where there was a lot of flight, where there was a lot of, like you said, people with advanced degrees, flipping burgers, and then to go live in lower Manhattan And to get to be present for its (laughs) (laughs) de-evolution, you know, from a place where artists could live and thrive and where there were these pockets that uh, were able to support creative people, were able to give them the time that they need to have their apprenticeships Mm -hmm. and to have the space um, to make art and to figure themselves out. But to see that contracting. Yeah. That's a lesson in class
1: as well. Well it is absolute gentrification is a type of is a class issue, yeah and I mean I
0: guess it. it's, it's it's touching us all, but those were two um, really concentrated experiences of mm-hmm. it, I would I suppose. so it's a preoccupation. Is it something that you feel like you were able to um, exercise like is it something you think you're probably going to revisit in future works? Is it something like having finished this book, is there some lesson that you learned? that you didn't previously um
1: have your your mind wrapped around you know what i'm saying yeah uh i you know it's funny because i I, again i i should really clarify that you know class is everywhere throughout the book it's not what the book is about Mm. ultimately you know really it's be I, i was interested in these two people, you know, it's 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 the room that shows us the universe. It's it's not the other way around, right? Um, and so, there's nothing worse than a polemic that starts with "Hey, did you know <laughs> you should?" You know, yeah. and so I wasn't interested in anything like that. And actually, what was important to me is 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 to find the most ordinary circumstances I could, stuff that I at least can readily relate to, and. Finding a way to actually elevate it in some regard, where there's this sense of something that's beautiful within that. Because again, this is not stuff that we can we can you know in in the East Village, for example, we didn't have money. It wasn't about money. Um, we were able to exist and, and work and be creative outside of that. Right. Um, so again, the, you know, the book isn't 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 really just geared around class. It's, it really, it's, you know, at its core, it's. I hope there's something about love in there as well. Yeah. Um, and what 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 that means outside of what we think about in terms of moral, you know, aesthetic. Well, and. You know, I guess sometimes I feel like, uh,
0: in my own experience at least, a piece of writing in terms of its themes and in terms of what it's really deeply about doesn't necessarily make itself clear, even to the author. Correct. Until the end.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And it's exactly what I was saying. So, it's you know, afterwards you can come in and kind of go, oh, that's that's what's emerging, this theme. And we, we, we do that academic shaping. But that's, that's at its core, not, I think at least, you know, I'm pretty sure Shakespeare didn't set out with a theme. Yeah, it's not enough to drive us over the finish line because it's too difficult. So it has to come from this some core, you know, kinetic energy that needs to push this thing forward.
0: Well, but it's also like you say, you know, um, the universe. You learn about the universe from the room or whatever. I forget exactly what you
1: said. It's yeah, flipping it. You know, the the, the room will show us. There. There's a poet actually. Um, there's a wonderful Irish poet called Patrick Havna, who grew up in Monaghan. Monaghan is. If there was, if if you're looking at a human anatomy, Monaghan is probably the, the armpit, um, and and he it, nothing happens there. There's nothing, but there was a road he used to take to school, and he wrote a poem about it called uh, the uh, Stony Grey Fields of Monaghan, and it talks about this idea of the kind of the way at a certain time in our lives we have this intimacy with a landscape, and there's a choice you make whether you want to leave that place and go and know the world, but you'll never know with that intimacy. And so it's an either or, you know, one place with great intimacy and it'll reveal the world to you, or you can try and know the world, but it's very difficult to do both.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, and it's like, I have this wanderlust. Um, I don't get to indulge it as much as I would like, especially with young kids. And you can't like just pack up and go. And and you know what, even before kids, like it takes money to pack up and go. You got to have a certain kind of lifestyle, but um, I love to travel, yeah. but yet, um, and, and I will sometimes, uh, to this day entertain the idea of like, maybe if we packed up and lived in X, things would be more interesting or yeah. easier or better. You know, it's a very, yeah. it's a very tempting train of thought. Uh, but then I'm also plagued by, um, you know, you've seen it written plenty of places or said by many wise people that like, you know, change of location, isn't ultimately going to fix anything. It's about what's between your sure. ears. And, and so. the
1: problem is with these places, when you show up there, you show up there, you know, you bring everything with you anyway. Right. So, <laughs> right.
0: you know. So, yeah. So I guess like, uh, there's yeah. a part of me that's like, maybe the, the right thing to do is just stay put.
1: Yeah. Yeah, make yeah. the best
0: of it where you are.
1: It's interesting. I have this this image in the book that I use a lot. Is every time Sonny works with his father, he's building walls. It's always walls. There's this sort of fortification going on, and it was it was something I was interested in. In that, you know, in some ways, he and we all want to be our father's son. We want to belong. We want to be part of a community. However, Sonny's also looked over the wall and he's seen that there is a world out there and there's a desperate need in him to leap over that wall and and, and go and have that experience but you can't have both and it harks back to that original um, that mythology of the hero's journey and it's funny because when that story's told I always feel like it's clipped it's always cut off the story is basically that the hero goes into the underworld to find the wisdom slay the wood dragon or whatever it is and then is free but the story doesn't stop there once he gets that wisdom he's to go back to the tribe and he has to go hey i got this thing in the underworld i got the wisdom i got the wisdom (laughs) and the first thing the tribe do is they look at each other and go who the hell does this guy think he is and they kill him but the real challenge of the hero's journey is bringing the knowledge back to the tribe because they don't want it right right you know, and so that's, you know, whereas we, we love the story to end with him just getting the thing and happy ever after. But it's not. The, the challenge actually starts after the fact. And again, I think it's something Sonny is aware of. I have a scene when he brings a T.S. Eliot book home and he presents it at the kitchen table and his mother picks it up and she's furious. What do you want me to do with this? And the mother has this awful task of protecting her own children from what they want—they might want in the world. And she says to them, you know, come winter, it's lumps of coal. Do you know that this stuff, this, this device you have in your hand is dangerous because it's going to challenge who we are. And we're not in a position to take up that challenge because the alternative is horrendous. Mm. And
0: so did you, when you were writing this, have a specific audience in mind a lot of times writers will be writing to a person or to a small collection of friends or like did you have somebody in mind that you were trying to communicate
1: to no but i probably should start doing that that sounds like a great idea (laughs) well maybe Um, for the next next one who knows yeah no i wouldn't know how honestly i i I couldn't it it, it, because you know you present different i if i presented different characters from my life who this book is like, you know, you're kind of like, oh, they would hate this kind of thing. And literally like, oh, you know, I just, I think it would be appalling. I just think it would. It would, <laughs> it would slow you down? I think it would really destroy the whole process for me. Yeah. What
0: about uh, next book? Are you working
1: on anything? I am, yeah. No, I've been working fairly vigorously. Um, and it's been great. It's been great. Uh, but it's, it's funny too, you know, this took me four years, uh, which is a long time, I'm told. But, Letting go of it is very difficult because you're the other thing about this book. It's written in second person, and which is not easy to do. It's really a terrible. I don't recommend <laughs> it. It's, you know, it's funny even when I read second persons novels, I kind of go, "Yeah, yeah, Um I've seen it done very well in the short story, but it's very difficult to, to sustain. sustain right? Yeah, and what I realized was that i I'd, I'd written it wasn't so much that it was a pure second person. What I wanted was was a protagonist who hadn't quite come to terms with its own narrative. And so the, the you um, becomes almost an accusation. Yeah. But the finger's pointed inward. It's not out at the world. It's and like a first, second person. Eight, well, it is in some ways. <laughs> yeah. And so, but the voice really clung to me, which is great, until you go to write something else. So I had to kind of spend some time shedding that. And the other thing is I really fell in love with Vera in some ways, and Sonny, and I missed them, and yeah. there's a third character we haven't mentioned called Sharon, who's Sonny's friend, and uh, yeah, I, I really miss. Well, them. Four years is a long time to spend with people. Yeah, it is. It is. And you do,
0: you do surrender, um, not owner, I mean, I guess ownership.
1: Well, it's not mine. It goes in and has it its own life. And yeah. that's that's as it should be, like like any child.
0: And that's what you, I mean, you're, you're writing to people. You want to communicate with the readership. Yeah.
1: And, and also, you know, a novel doesn't exist in a vacuum. You know, work is is to be read. I mean, that relationship between a reader and an author meets in the center. It's just it's that, that thing we talked about where it doesn't live until it's a reader reinterpreting, you know, and that that's what you want.
0: Well, uh, I think you're getting it. Yes, uh, it's great to meet you, and <laughs> thank you. I appreciate you coming over here, like jet lagged, <laughs> like a what I don't even know a twenty-hour journey from Glasgow to Los Angeles. Probably slept about three hours. Yeah, <laughs> um, thank God for coffee.
1: Yeah, and good coffee here. Yeah,
0: so it was it was great uh, to talk with you, and congratulations. It's a
1: pleasure. Thanks for having me in. Really appreciate it.
0: All right, guys, there you go. That is Carl Geary. His novel is called Montpelier Parade. It is available in the United States from Catapult. Montpelier Parade. Carl Geary, you can find him online. He's on Facebook, and he is on Twitter. His handle on Twitter is at Geary Carl. Carl with a K. So very nice talking with him. Thanks to Kill Rockstars uh, for the the music as usual. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. Don't forget about the Other People app. It's free. It's the best way to listen. Get it for your uh, iPhone. Get it for your Android device. The Other People with Brad Listy app, wherever you get your apps. If you would like to write to me, let me know what you think. Share a story. Whatever the case may be, the address is letters at otherppl.com. If you would like to uh, drop a couple of bucks in the hat, you can do that at patreon.com slash pod. So, uh, yeah, it was just, it's good to talk with somebody who's not American. I mean, I know he's actually, uh, I want to say he's a naturalized citizen. He's lived here, you know, he lived in the United States for a long time, so he knows the states in a way uh, that most people from other countries do not. But it's good for the show. I think it's good, hopefully, for you guys to hear from a voice uh, from abroad and also to talk to somebody who's had such a varied creative life. That's always fascinating to me when people have worn different hats and done so with some success tried different things on cross-pollinated and then fed that into their fiction I guess in some uh, capacity so it is uh, it's a Saturday as I record this been up since dawn done a lot of talking into a microphone today it's an odd thing to be doing (laughs) on a Saturday it's two o'clock in the afternoon Almost on the nose. I've been sitting here talking into a microphone more or less since 9 a.m. That's the truth. Just try to give you guys a broad overview of what I'm uh, up to over here. So I've got some great shows in the pipeline. I'm very excited to share with you. I've had some good conversations lately. Keep your ears uh, tuned. Keep your eyes tuned. You know what I'm saying. Stay tuned to see what happens uh, in the weeks to come. As I roll out more episodes of the Other People podcast and share with you more conversations with people who write books, it's making me want to write a book. Talking to all these people, I can tell you that much. I've been thinking about it. Got to figure out when. I got to wedge that in. Got to find some time. Got to uh, find some like energy, some uh, like mother load of caffeine. Figure out a way. Reprioritize. Here's the here's the quandary. You want to know what the quandary is? The quandary is. I feel like in order to do the work, uh, in the creative work, I would have to sacrifice to some degree, uh, to some degree at least, my uh, physical well being. You know, by getting less sleep or by exercising less, I would have to sacrifice my physical health, which I think maybe some people would do easily. They'd say, fuck it, I want to write. I don't care about my physical health. I don't care about my sleep. I don't care about getting exercise. But I'm a person who wants to be well, which I think might be holding me up. Am I using that as an excuse? Is that the problem? Am I trying to use my physical health as an excuse why I'm not getting enough writing done? Do I have my priorities out of whack? I don't know what the problem is here. I'm trying to figure it out.